0: Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Madison, the historian for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and I'm with Jeffrey Ryan, author of a brand new book, This Land Was Saved for You and Me, wonderful book.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for
0: sharing. It just came out in September. September 1st. That's wonderful. This is something new we're trying. Uh, In addition to doing a public lecture this evening, which we're very excited about, to kind of kick off the new book, we're actually adding a little bonus content for those of you that watch it online uh, to learn a little more about the author, in this case, Jeffrey, who's very, very interesting. In addition to this book, I think the first time we had you out here, Jeff, was about the Appalachian Trail. Um, you have an interesting way of researching your books. It's kind of uh, uh, go there and then write about it.
1: Right. I, I feel really strongly about the experiential part of writing about my subject. So, in the in the case of the appalachian trail i spent 28 years hiking it with the same friend and um, i think it just really gives you an appreciation in in particular in that case i developed uh, and refined an appreciation for being outdoors which i always had but i also started really developing a, an appreciation for the people that made our public lands possible. Uh, we wouldn't have those landscapes to enjoy if it weren't for the people who came before us and um, and the people who have picked up the baton to make sure that they stay vibrant and protected.
0: One of the interesting things about you, besides the fact you spent 28 years researching a book, <laughs> which is probably a Guinness record, is um, you describe yourself as a storyteller, um, and that is not, hype, Uh, I just stumbled across your uh, website looking for an image and came across a marvelous story I'd forgotten that was in your Benton Mackay book. Uh, Tell us briefly the connection between the World's Fair,
1: Dvorak,
0: (laughs) and the Appalachian Trail. This This is one of my favorite
1: conservation
0: history moments ever.
1: Well, it's funny (laughs) you mention that. I I think what I've found is the more I dive into conservation history, the more I find this amazing web of threads that uh, that connects people that you would never even imagine connecting. And in the case of the World's Fair and um, Dvorak and the Appalachian Trail, it turns out that the father of the Appalachian Trail, Benton Mackay, his father was a phenomenal talent in the, in the realm of theater. Um, he was not only a tremendous playwright, but he also patented, I think it was 17 things that were related to theaters, inclu- including one that stays with us today, the folding theater seat, really? which he designed so that people could escape a theater in case of a fire, um, which was a real threat back then when they had gas lamps lighting the stage. And so uh, Mackay's father came up with this idea to build the largest theater in the history of the world for the World's Fair in 1893 in Chicago and got 800,000 plus dollars in funding from people like Pullman of the Pullman (laughs) Car Company and um, put the money to use to start building this giant theater. And he hired Dvorak to write the score for the uh, play that he was going to have in the theater, which, oh, by the way, was going to have an eight-foot deep stage floating life-size replicas of the Nina Pinta and Santa Maria. (laughs) And so this whole thing was absurd in its scale, and um, what ended up happening was there was a financial panic, there were a bunch of other problems, The financiers started pulling money away from the project and it only ever ended up being one-third built. Uh, The symphony was uh, only partially completed when Dvorak left and went to New York. And when people from the New York Philharmonic heard parts of it, they said, this is fantastic, you need to finish it. And it ended up being what we now know as Symphony Number Nine, the New World Symphony, that's the most famous <laughs> one, <laughs> the, the, the best staple. symphony ever. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they all kind of intersected there. And sadly, Macai's father died of basically of shame only months after the failure of his theater, which he felt was such a colossal failure. And as a direct line to Macai, uh, young Macai. He ended up spending a lot of time in the outdoors healing from that event of losing his father at age 14. And so I really believe that 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 event and the fallout from it helped him become the person that he became the the great proponent of spending time in the outdoors.
0: And you wrote a great
1: biography of Mackay and his
0: his conflict. Yeah, <laughs>
1: Mackay's a hero of mine because he, did so many things and, and like another hero in my book, um, Frederick Law Olmsted had such a varied life um, which culminated in protecting wilderness areas. Um, both of them had really amazing upbringings with a lot of fits and starts and careers in public service and for public service and just wonderful legacies. You also
0: are interesting in that you, you travel to a lot of different places to get a sense of, of the context of some of these conservation pioneers you look at. What does that add to your history?
1: It adds a lot. I uh, As we mentioned before, a sense of place is really important to me and what I'm really interested in is about the intersection of what made these people who they are, um, how much was spending time in the outdoors an influence, how much was their parental guidance or um, adult guidance part of that narrative? And going there and experiencing that is really important to me, to be able to tell the story um, in a way that resonates. It has to really resonate with me first before I can tell it effectively or persuasively to an audience. So. It's interesting because in the case of Olmsted, he was really taken by scenery. It was the number one thing he remembers from being a child. And the importance of scenery to him really laid out everything in terms of how he designed parks, like Central Park, but also how he felt about Yosemite when he saw it the first time. So in the case of Central Park, he was bringing nature to people um, that were already there. In the case of Yosemite, he realized that the people weren't there yet, but he, he had to make sure that the nature was protected so that when they got there, it wouldn't be trampled, which was an amazing insight to have in 1864. Yeah, we
0: don't usually think of Olmsted as a conservationist, more mm. as an urban designer and right. so on.
1: Right. So, he, he felt really strongly about both Yosemite and Niagara Falls, which is another really interesting uh, example because he saw Niagara Falls as a child and went back and saw a number of hot dog stands and um, sort of a Coney Island atmosphere there, and he was really uh, affected by that, um, astounded is a better word and helped make sure that the place was not only preserved, what hadn't been um, sort of affected already by mankind, but also saw that some of those um, businesses were, were taken out, so that the, um, the view was, was put back in play again.
0: So this book looks at a century of folks from Olmstead through Howard Zonizer and there's, I think, seven characters (laughs) you looked at. Um, What intrigues you about telling history through biography? How did you pick
1: these seven? Uh, Boy, it's, it's the threads again. I started following the thread and I was really actually surprised because I was going to start with Pinchot, but Pinchot was handed the baton from Olmsted, so I started digging more into Olmstead and was really amazed like I I believe I hope most people are that thought that he was an urban park designer which largely he was but it was all about the scenery and it was about how meaningful nature being in nature was um, for everyone and so it was he who hired Pinchot to manage the forest at Biltmore mm-hmm. and started the whole forestry movement, arguably, so, and to show the viability of forestry as a profession, so that when I started following those um, threads along, I also started looking into what about other people that were making the call for preservation, but their voices weren't being heard yet. So I started weaving them into the story, too, because Often they're overlooked. There were fits and starts of movement of the movement toward preserving and um, and con- conserving more land, and it, and it took these big movers and shakers to actually make it happen. But they couldn't have done it if those people weren't building the um, making the salad or, or however you want to put it, preparing the the food for the great feast. Um, If that wasn't happening, they wouldn't have gotten where they were going. It was not something they could have done themselves. So, as I started building that narrative, it all sort of fell into place. Um, I started with what I thought was going to be a conservation family tree and found out that it was so complex that it was beyond my pay grade or um, (laughs) I refer to it in my lecture as uh, Spock playing three-dimensional chess that I, I could not Make it quite work as well as I could if it was a linear event. So
0: it's a nice tight book.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And, and
0: a good introduction to Thank all of you. these. I wonder if did any of these seven characters particularly resonate with you?
1: Well, as I mentioned, Benton has has been <laughs> a big hero of mine all the way through, and and because he he was a forester himself, he understood. Uh, the basic principles of forestry, but he was also um, one of the founder of the Appalachian Trail, and then switched gears and became one of the founders of the Wilderness Society, and so he basically lived through that progression, that it that sort of sets the backbone of my book. So Benton's Benton's a big one. Um, uh, Aldo Leopold, of course, is also an amazing person that way who basically founded um, the whole concept of game management and was dabbling in watershed restoration and ultimately prairie restoration and also became one of the founders of the Wilderness Movement. So, um, uh, their their disparate characters and how they all got there is really interesting to me. Um, Different parts of the country, different upbringings, all arriving at the same place.
0: Well, and you have an interesting subtitle about how a band of foresters rescued America's public lands. Is there something about forestry in this period that particularly inclined people towards conservation? Because people forget yes. Leopold was trained as a forester, worked for the Forest Service and so on.
1: Right, yeah. well, I think the first thing was is that Pinchot taught and, and was adamant about the fact that uh, his job was not to put foresters out of business. Uh, There was a great fear that whatever he was up to was basically anti-forestry, and that was not the question. The question was, how do we manage the resource for the benefit of all of us? And so that lesson resonated with all the young foresters that he hired. I think what they saw was that forest management was viable and necessary, but there was also something else necessary, which was making sure that at least some of our lands weren't forested and that um, they were left untrammeled by man, as Howard Zahniser put it. And I think the great great, um, takeaway for this book is that, for me, is that all those pieces, all those parts of the public lands need to be created and protected because Urban people need parks to go to. Uh, we need splendorous places like the national parks to go to. We need forests to be viable for all of us, economically and for our own well-being. But then the, the fourth and the final part of it is wilderness and just leaving places alone is also important for us as people and for the planet. So. There's, there are great reasons for all of them, and it's a great thing that all of these people came along to make it so. Now mm-hmm. it's our turn.
0: Yep. <laughs> well, you're not just an author and historian, but you've also done outreach, and you've made at least two videos on conservation heroes, on Aldo Leopold and Howard Zahniser. What was the purpose of those?
1: <laughs> I. Uh, Really have a fascination for the founders of the Wilderness Society and uh, deep appreciation for them, and they're all characters. Every one of them is is uh, an amazing person, and so I just started delving into uh, looking into each one of them one at a time. And I'm now I'm working on the Ernest Oberholzer film even as we speak, um, which is starting to come into form, so I I really want to help, um, not only honor their contributions, but help get them back into the spotlight any way I can. Um, All very committed people and um, interesting people, worth visiting again.
0: The videos are wonderful. Thank you. And uh, where can you find them, Jeff?
1: You can find the videos on my website called VoicesOfTheWilderness.com. That's a good place to check them out, and uh, more, more will be forthcoming. <laughs>
0: Great. And the last fun thing about you, I'm sure you have many other fun things, but that, that I know, as is, is you and you alluded to, you're an avid hiker. Um, and actually, one of the fun things on your website was what to do if you get off the trail. And it's kind of interesting, as I was reading it, some of your tips actually apply to life. <laughs> get it's off funny the how trail. that happens. <laughs> Would you want to share a tip or two for some of our hikers in the audience if they, they, they lose track of the trail?
1: Sure, absolutely. I, my, my biggest thing about being in the out of doors is you're there to have fun, but don't forget you still have a job to do, which is st- <laughs> right. stay aware of your surroundings and what's going on. And uh, I I believe that the best way to Make sure that you come back uh, safe and sound in one piece is to keep track of a few things all the time. And it's not that you have to slavishly be hyper aware of these things, but have them in your consciousness. And so I always think to myself, uh, how's the water situation? How's my my mental state? How's my physical state? Um, Where's the next water? And where is my buddy? (laughs) I haven't seen him in a while. Maybe I should stop. And then the last one is, when was the last time I saw a blaze marking where the trail is? And I think the number one reason any of us get lost is we lose that consciousness. It's I'm walking along on a path and it's still a path. And all of a sudden I look up and I'm not sure it's the path I'm supposed to be on. And that's the time to stop and retrace your steps and don't panic and just sort of uh, calibrate, recalibrate, and and then get back to what you were doing. And uh, that does apply to life. It does. The the other... (laughs) Don't keep running.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The other lesson you had that that resonated with me that applies to life is uh, if you get lost, the tendency is to walk downhill. Because right. it's easier. Yes. <laughs> the trail you're supposed to be on is usually up going down. up.
1: Right. <laughs> so go back to where you came from. Right. The easy way out always gets you in trouble, which is probably another great That's life That's a metaphor, lesson. too.
0: <laughs> well, Jeff, this has been really fun. Thank you. And I've enjoyed all of your books, and I really enjoyed this last one. This land was saved for you and me. So thank you for coming out to do the public lecture. Thank you for doing this little extra content for the online visitors. and. Uh, The other, the last thing I forgot to mention is Jeff has actually been to NCTC three times to speak, more than any other speaker, he holds the record, uh, and we hope to get you out here a fourth time.
1: Thank you. (laughs)
0: Thank you, and thank you for tuning in.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you so much to the Conservation Lecture Series team. Doug Canfield, Rob Garfinkel, Melissa Gonzalez, Johnny McEachin, Rhonda Miller, Randy Robinson and of course host Mark Madison who's always a pleasure to meet with. Special thanks to the friends of the National Conservation Training Center for inviting me to join their series and to give a lecture on site. If you'd like to see the video of that lecture you can visit www.fws.gov forward slash nctc dash archived dash broadcast my conservation video series voices of the wilderness can be found at voices of the and to learn more about my books please visit www.jeffryanauthor.com thank you for listening and we'll see you next time